This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So before we get into today's episode, I just want to announce that my candle shop, Knox Investa, has officially launched as of this past Friday. So I'm super excited to share everything with you. And if you're interested in checking out the candle shop, make sure to go to noxvesta.com. That's N-O-X-V-E-S-T-A.com or check out its Instagram, also noxvesta. We are launching with nine signature scents with some of my favorite scents that hopefully you'll like too. This includes the scent Alexandria, which smells like a library, Paradisius, that's like a tropical getaway, Rococo, which is like a sweet sugared rose. It's really great because I don't like roses, so it's a rose for people that don't like rose. Or maybe you'll even like Lab 75, which is a twist of one of my favorite drinks called the French 75, but with a little bit of lavender in it. Again, the shop is noxvesta.com or the Instagram is also noxvesta.com. Let's get into today's episode. Maria Duval was a renowned psychic back in the 70s and 80s, but what she truly became known for was sending letters across the globe in one of the biggest, longest lasting mail fraud scams ever. But did Maria really do this alone? Hell, did Maria have any involvement at all or was someone just profiting off of her good name? In one of the most tangled webs of shell companies I've ever unweaved, today's episode will hopefully answer those questions and shed a bit of light on this psychic scam. So hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Multi-Level Mondays. Today, rather than talking about an MLM, we're going to expand and talk about some of the other scams that are involved in the world as we know it. And today we're going to be turning our focus to something called the Maria Duval Psychic Scam. Although I normally start with the company's history and who started a scam, today we're not gonna be starting with Maria Duval. Instead, we're going to start with the scam itself. You'll see why in a bit, but suffice to say, I want to operate on a timeline as much as possible. So this scam began in the mid 1990s with letters. Not only did they claim to be from psychic Maria Duval, but they contained plenty of empty promises inside. For example, one of them would read, Goldie, there are three, yes, three Friday the 13th in 2009. So three opportunities to win a large sum of money. And that's not all. Two of these Friday the 13th are in consecutive months and they're coming up in just a few weeks. This exceptional phenomenon happens only once every hundred years. Yes, this is going to happen to you, Goldie, but only once in your lifetime. So, hey, why would anyone fall for this, right? Plenty tossed it in with junk mail. However, many of the people that began receiving these letters were elderly people and those who may have had dementia or Alzheimer's disease. The promise of a windfall was tempting. And with some of these letters, eerily enough, they had quite a bit of personal information as well. There would be birthdays, hometowns, astrological signs, and vague descriptors that could apply to the person reading the letter. For example, some would say, I can already see some aspects of your personality. Like everyone, you have some faults. I can also see that you have some great qualities. Among other things, you are generous, sensual, and also creative. The letter signed by Maria Duval also claimed to know that they were going through a period of financial difficulty. 
This, along with personality traits and personal information, was enough to catch anyone's attention. After all, those that were in a difficult financial position were more susceptible to this scam to begin with. Naturally, someone validating them might feel like a prediction when in actuality, the author of these letters was probably just trying to cast a wide net on anyone that was desperate. This Maria Duval, for many, became a close personal confidant. The handwritten letters served as feeling more personal and apparently brought some of these victims to tears. The more the correspondence went on, the more Maria asked for. Victims sent in personal photos, locks of hair, and naturally money. Of course, the personal information gathered about these people seems to have been pieced together from sucker lists sold by data brokers. And from information the victims themselves had unknowingly provided in the past. Even so, these people, in a sense, felt like they had someone looking out for them. Some sent thousands of dollars to the supposed psychic Maria Duval, believing that their communication was personal and that of a friendship. Others say that the relationship wasn't a close-knit one, but one on threats and fear. Back in 1997, one woman told the Scottish Sunday Mail newspaper that she was terrified of what would happen if she didn't send in the money. When I wrote to say I didn't have that kind of cash, the letters got even more frightening. I was so scared I couldn't eat or sleep, worrying whether I'd be hit by a bad luck, she said. This scare tactic was apparently the last resort by these scammers. They'd start off sweet and nice and remain that way so long as the money kept rolling in. Then once the cash stopped coming, it could get incredibly dark. Of course, we've heard about these kinds of scams plenty of times before. Scams that promise lottery wins, romance scams where frauds develop fake relationships with victims and even grandparent scams that convince family members to wire money to a loved one. These letters from Maria used a combination of all these fearful, lonely, and desperate emotions. So now let's talk about the victims of this scam. This section is going to be just a bit more graphic, at least for the first minute or so, as there will be some mentions of self-harm. So please feel free to skip ahead a few minutes if you don't wanna hear about this, but I found these stories especially important to tell so that you know how deep this scam actually ran and how badly it affected those involved. According to the book, A Deal with the Devil, one of the most tragic stories was that of a young British girl who reportedly drowned with Maria's letter in her pocket. She was only 17 years old at the time. The book reads, found screaming for help as she was subsumed into the river Ware in Sunderland, a city in Northeast England. Claire Ellis ventured into the water on a cold December night in 1998 for unclear reasons. When we arrived, she was still alive and shouting, but we couldn't find any ropes long enough to reach her and there weren't any life belts. Police constable Kim Maynard told a newspaper reporter at the time. Maynard reportedly jumped into the rushing water in an attempt to save the girl, but she was already unconscious. Maynard stated, I managed to get a hold of her and started to pull her in, but by that stage, she had stopped shouting and I couldn't feel a pulse. A lifeboat was eventually able to bring her to shore, but it was too late and Claire died in the hospital. Her official cause of death was hypothermia. The community was naturally shaken by this, but Claire's mother had a theory about why her daughter had passed away. According to her, Claire had been writing to a psychic woman who told Claire she had magical powers and that over the past few months, Claire had become strangely fixated on clairvoyance. Claire's mother saw that her daughter spent a fortune on Maria's talismans and even got letters from this woman for months after Claire had died. She was understandably convinced that this had played a role in her daughter's death. While we can't say for certain that Claire went into the water that night because she believed she had powers or because Maria encouraged her to, Either way, Claire had been a victim of this Maria Duval scam to some extent. 
One mother of five said she sent Maria so much money that she couldn't pay her bills. And though she feels like a fool in hindsight, she felt like a failure at the time and was trying to give her children a better life. Maria's letters had come to her during some dark times, her separation from her husband, when she lost her job, and when her son joined the military. One Utah resident said they were in even worse shape after sending Maria money. They ended up $5,000 in debt and homeless. Another woman, Doreen, told her daughter, Chrissy, that Maria Duvall's letters had been something special, and she couldn't even explain why when asked about it. After ignoring plenty of scams throughout the years, it was Maria's that got to her and Maria's that put her in debt. Even as her family tried to get her to stop, Doreen kept sending cash to different mailboxes throughout the world. Some were in New York, another was even as far as Malaysia. It was painful, it was frustrating. Then I just grew angry, Chrissy said. I'm not an angry person by any means. It takes a lot to get me mad, but boy oh boy, to find out how long they had taken advantage of this woman who believed she was getting something for her money. Personally, I think it's the handwritten and personal aspect that may have fooled so many people. And think about it. If you see a letter in your mailbox that is clearly a credit card offer and another that's handwritten with personal information in it, which one are you more likely to take seriously? For someone lonely, this was like a friend giving them financial advice. Plus, if they only asked for 40, 50, or $60 at first, it may not sound like all that much. Of course, the Maria Duval scam wasn't about getting thousands all at once, but getting these victims to slowly and surely trust them and turn over whatever they had. Even when Doreen realized she'd been taken advantage of and she was ashamed by it, her memory declined. Chrissy and her brothers took away her checkbooks and assumed legal responsibility of her finances, but Doreen still cobbled together piles of cash and coins to send to Maria. The book describes one particularly heartbreaking scenario when Doreen tried to quit, she writes. In a call that Chrissy will always remember, a woman named Marianne, who worked as the secretary for her mother's financial advisor, told Chrissy she needed to drive to Doreen's house immediately. Marianne explained that Doreen had called her earlier, telling her through tears she had done something naughty. When Marianne had arrived, she'd found Doreen surrounded by envelopes addressed to scammers like Maria Duval stuffed with cash and coins. Doreen was completely distraught. After hurrying over, Chrissy walked into a heartbreaking scene with Marianne counting and sorting money as Doreen sat looking on. Mom wrung her hands sitting forlornly in her chair, a stack of tissues in her lap, Chrissy said. It wasn't until the winter of 2010 that the full extent of Doreen's debt, about $50,000 came to light. I'm not sure exactly how much was sent to Maria specifically and how much was sent to other scammers, but we know that thousands at minimum had gone to the scam psychic. Oh, and as for those talismans that Maria was sending out, they were nothing more than cheap trinkets, often from China. So knowing all of this, the natural follow-up question here is who did this? Doreen and Claire are just two examples of the effect that these letters had on people. Some estimate that these Maria Duval letters began hitting mailboxes in the 80s and others say it was 1994. But either way, there were well over 1 million victims in the United States alone who were defrauded out of almost $200 million. So United States authorities recognized this, found out who Maria Duval was and arrested her, right? Well, actually it's far more complicated than that. First and foremost, it wasn't just Maria's name on these letters. There was another psychic named Patrick Gurin who refers to himself as a celebrated power medium on his website. And he advertises things like the amazing power of vibratory crystals. Generally speaking, though both of them are French physics, it was Maria's name that became so attached to the scam. Still, even with a name, finding the origin of these letters wasn't exactly easy. 
Documents from the US government's investigation revealed that the mailbox victims were sending letters to weren't opened by Maria Duvall in the first place, but by a businessman in Switzerland. Investigators were so stumped by this that it led many to believe Maria Duvall just didn't exist in the first place. One journalist wrote in 2001 that she's a glamorous European blonde who claims to see the future and has been published in newspapers worldwide. Problem is, she does not exist. In 2004, the International Consumer Protection and Enforcement Network agreed that she was probably fictitious after efforts to shut down her advertisements and mailings in nine countries were put in motion. She was a front, a sort of face of the scam used so that victims could feel a personal connection to her, but she wasn't real. Yet across the globe, some Australians weren't so sure of this. In 2007, after learning that Australians had lost more than 10 million US dollars, Australian officials found that the money was being rerouted to a company in Singapore. The owner of this company, Tony, told investigators that Maria Duval did in fact exist and she was a client of his living in either France or Argentina. Reporters accused him of making the whole thing up and though Tony promised he'd arrange a meeting with her, that never happened. One woman claiming to be Duval was interviewed by an Australian radio station in the early 2000, but she spent the entire 15 minutes talking up her psychic abilities. For many, this wasn't exactly the proof that they needed to see that Maria Duval was actually real. She hadn't answered any questions about the fraud anyway. There was so little known about her and by large, Duval remained a mystery. For some, this only made her more intriguing. CNN journalists wrote, a Belgian journalist took a more skeptical approach documenting Duval's scam on radio and TV and eventually convincing a woman who claimed to be Duval to sit down with him at a cafe in Paris. During this TV interview, she admitted that she doesn't sign the letters herself, but defended the operation, saying that the majority of her clients are happy while those who are unsatisfied are offered refunds. By 2014, US officials were still a bit baffled. U.S. prosecutors say they didn't even know if Maria Duval was a real person or a fictitious character. And the U.S. Postal Inspection Service said this was one of the largest scam cases of mail fraud in history. However, slowly but surely, more information about Maria Duval and the scam that bears her name were coming to light. One investigative report from CNN said that the scam truly harkens back to 1985 when Duval or someone pretending to be her granted a French trademark for the commercial use of her name. A number of other trademarks were issued across the globe in the years following, some allegedly filed by Duval herself. Yet even attorneys that had represented her claimed that they never actually met Duval in person. Apparently in 2007, she signed a settlement with the US Postal Service in which she denied any wrongdoing, but no one associated with the case could even tell investigators where the signature came from. As easy as it would be to simply assume that Maria Duval was the one behind this, there's just no way, realistically speaking, that it could even be possible. One person writing thousands and thousands of letters, gathering up that information? No, there had to have been a network for this. According to court documents filed by the United States Destiny Research Center, a Hong Kong corporation sent solicitation letters through the USPS to consumers, stylized as personal letters, and signed them using these psychic's names. From 2006 to 2014, when this lawsuit was filed, DRC sent over 56 million pieces of mail to the US. Then the printed solicitations were shipped by truck from Canada and deposited with the US Postal Service in Albany, with each batch being anywhere from 20 to 50,000 pieces of mail. The return envelopes for consumers were pre-addressed to Destiny Research Center at one of three addresses, commercial mail receiving agencies in Nevada, Illinois, and Ontario, Canada. 
The CMRAs bundled up the mail and forwarded it to a different organization, Data Marketing Group. DMG was set up to process the payments, as many as half a million every two weeks. They would also open and read the mail in order to enter requests for refunds into a database, take the money and toss the personal items sent to the psychics. Then once payments were entered into the database, a third party fulfillment company sent out the token or product ordered along with a new solicitation offering more psychic predictions. And yet another company, Infogest, operating out of Montreal, Canada, controlled DRC's direct mail operations. Infogest has acknowledged that they arranged to send these letters, but denied any wrongdoing. So, all right, I know that's a lot to take in. So let me just break this down one more time and hopefully a little more simply. DRC was responsible for sending out millions of solicitation letters. DMG processed the payments. Infogest also controlled the mail operations. I know that's a bit of an oversimplification here. The chances are this tangled web was created to try and shove responsibility elsewhere and make it difficult for investigators to track the source of this information to begin with. As if it weren't obvious enough, this wasn't just Maria Duval's doing. In fact, was this even her doing at all? Was someone just using her name to scam others? Who led these companies to begin with? Well, this is where we're gonna dig just a little bit deeper to try and find out. Now, before we go on to unveil who I think the mastermind in this tangled web of scams is, let's take a quick break to thank today's sponsor. Thanks to Avast One for sponsoring today's episode. So many of us are working from home right now with less virus protection, although there's troubling stories coming out regularly about cyber attacks that disrupt our basic infrastructure. So I think it's high time that we've all had a serious talk about how we view cybersecurity. Avast has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and is trusted by over 435 million users. One of my favorite things about Avast is that it just kind of runs in the background. Like once you have it set up and going, I don't really have to bother it or deal with it because I don't really get all the ins and outs of cybersecurity, but it's nice that it's just peace of mind that it handles everything for me. Every once in a while, I'll get the little pop-up in the corner of my computer that's like, hey, we need to update something. And other than that, it just kind of minds its business and so do I. Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cyber crimes. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Now, if you were a big fan of SpongeBob as a kid, as I kind of was, it's great to go back and rewatch the show from time to time and relive all the SpongeBob glory that refreshingly still feels relevant. Or maybe you never stopped watching it at all because it's so awesome. And hey, I can't stop watching the jellyfish scene forever. What is it, the jellyfish rave episode? One of my favorites, I'll never let it go. But if that's you, then I have a treat that you'll truly enjoy. SpongeBob Binge Pants, Nickelodeon's official SpongeBob companion podcast. Hosts Frankie Grande, Henry Danger, and Hector Navarro, host of Nickelodeon Animation Podcast, are SpongeBob superfans, and they're re-watching and recapping every episode of the series on SpongeBob Binge Pants. Episodes feature behind-the-scenes trivia and interviews with talent and voice actors and the people who helped bring Bikini Bottom to life. And they release new episodes every Thursday on all podcast platforms. So take a listen to SpongeBob Binge Pants on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
CNN journalists Blake Ellis and Melanie Hicken claim that initially they were convinced Australian man Joseph David and the company he's director of Lizanto Limited may be responsible. He appeared in domain registrations of mariaduval.com and mariaduval.net. Plus he was listed as the current owner of international trademarks for her name, meaning he can use it for business purposes. But the further they looked, the more convinced they were that he was hired to conceal the real ringleaders, according to them. While Davit, Listano's director, is located in Australia, Listano's address was listed on 37 Greenhill Street in the quaint British town of Shakespeare's birth, Stratford-upon-Avon. When you look up this address on Google Street View, all that shows up is a nondescript building above a fabric store and across the street from a kebab shop. There is no Listano in sight. Confused, we searched a UK company registry database and found that more than 100 businesses have been registered to this very same address. As we scrolled through the names of the many different companies, we were shocked to see some very familiar names listed as directors. Andrea Egger, for example, is apparently the director of an investment company listed at 37 Greenhill Street. He also happens to be a Swiss attorney who we've told represented Duval during one of her earliest trademark applications. Meanwhile, a man named Martin Detling is listed as a former director of a Hellesport and Mega Yacht Company located at 37 Greenhill Street. Detling also happens to be named in the US mail fraud lawsuit as the director of Destiny Research Center. We tried to reach Edgar and Detling, but they didn't respond to our messages. Why are so many businesses listed to this same odd address that has no business in sight? Someone must be behind it. That's when we found a curious accountant named Barney McGettigan. His accounting firm was one of the companies listed at the address, so we decided to try giving him a call. McGettigan didn't exactly give us information, but instead hung up on the pair. This string of strange and suspicious activity feels endless. One of the first solid leads CNN had was with a former employee at Astroforce, a company that published Maria Duval's books. Though he didn't want to be named, this lead told them that investigators should focus their attention on two European businessmen, Jacques Michal Mayland and Jean-Claude Raoul. Apparently, the latter ran both Astroforce and Infogest, while Mayland was the mailing genius. And as it turns out, yes, Duval was a real psychic and one that had gotten some popularity back in the 70s and 80s. Her face had once been everywhere in horoscope columns, on the French Vogue and in TV and radio. Mayland had allegedly wanted to use this notoriety and hire her to become the face and name of a new mailing campaign in the 90s, hence the scam. Yet as promising as this lead sounded, it crashed and burned right away. Those looking for Mayland learned that he had recently passed away. And when they tried to look up Riol, they found some incredibly strange, questionable religious material. Apparently he had once written a book called Yes to Human Cloning, Eternal Life Thanks to Science and belonged to a religion that claimed humans descended from aliens. He claims to have left that religion now, but I get some really strong celestial seasonings tea cult vibes out of that one for sure. In addition to the questionable religious aspect, Riol also claims that Infogest was, and in fact was once his company. He said that he bought a number of businesses in 1991 and in 1996, they were all grouped together into Rowling Holding, a firm that was eventually called Infogest. In that same year, he began selling the businesses and in 2006 received his last payment from the buyout. 
He also denied having any involvement with the letters. Still, Ellis and Hicken were obviously suspicious of him. And I mean, he had way, way too many connections with Duval for it to be a coincidence. Plus the former Astroforce employee claimed that both Astroforce and Infogest shared the same buildings. A number of the people that were involved with Duval's letters also named him as being part of the scam. So the question is, how could he not know? How could he be unaware of tens of thousands of letters being handled by his own company? It's so frustrating because while there isn't the evidence to truly say that he was involved, it's incredibly fishy all the same. And to those close to the case, you know, they seem to say like he was probably involved, but this still isn't all. The network doesn't end there. There are still a few questionable people involved with psychic scams, bouncing from shell company to shell company to shell company and trading through an endless number of hands as Ellison Hicken put it. But what about the lawsuit? Did anyone finally take the fall for any of this? As it turns out, the answer is yes. Someone did take the fall for this, but it's a name we haven't even discussed yet. Patrice Runner. The United States indicted Runner in 2018, claiming that he was the mastermind behind the fraud and ran it from 1994 to 2014. It was Runner who directed the employees of Infogest to handle the daily operations of the scheme. And this included tracking responses, updating mailing lists, and identifying new victims. The court documents have also charged Runner and his co-conspirators with writing and editing the mail letters to begin with, and said that neither Maria Duval nor Patrick Gurren were actually involved with the scheme. According to the case, when a victim responded to the fraudulent letters by returning a payment or other requested personal items, the defendant Patrice Runner and his co-conspirators caused numerous additional follow-up or backed and letters to be sent to the victim purportedly from psychic A or B, Maria or Patrick. These letters purported to describe additional visions, offered additional services and unique and supernatural objects and sought additional payments, usually 20 to $50 from the victim. The victims who sent in payment in response to one fraudulent letter received as many as 30 to 40 of these backend letters in a single six month mailing cycle. Many victims received more than 100 fraudulent letters from the scheme. It's disgusting how pushy and how persistent these scammers were. It's said that this was not only one of the world's longest running cons, but this affected more than 60 times the number of people in Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. And this was a worldwide thing too, making it all the harder to really track down what exactly happened and how many people were ripped off. As morbid as this might be to say, if a lot of the people scammed were elderly, chances are that some probably passed on before ever seeing justice. Two of these co-conspirators were named as Maria Thanos and Philip Lett, who helped Runner manage this day-to-day info with an info jest. Thanos and Lett face up to 20 years in prison and up to a quarter of a million dollars in fines, whereas Runner faces 20 years for each one of the 18 counts against him. The US was able to return more than $200,000 worth of cash and money order payments sent in by more than 6,000 victims. But when you consider that over $180 million was taken, this means less than one thousandth was actually recovered. Unsurprisingly, I'm not convinced justice will win out in this case. Patrice Runner's hearing was scheduled for July 7th, 2021, which is the most recent update I have on the case. He hasn't been sentenced yet. And even when he is, I don't think that his punishment will be enough. Given that this scam lasted 20 years, it seems likely that at least someone else aside from the small handful of conspirators were involved. Yes, Patrice Runner should be punished for his part in this, but what about the heads of all the other shell companies involved? I think their heads should be on the line too. But let's go back to the beginning here. What about 
Maria Duvall. What did she herself actually have to say about this, if anything? And was she really not involved, even in the slightest? Some find it incredibly hard to believe, and let's talk about why. Back in 2008, when Astroforce liquidated, Maria received nearly $200,000. This is really the only concrete evidence that I've seen that links her back to the mailing operation, given that, as we said earlier, Astroforce has been linked to InfoGest. Yet, does this mean Maria was aware of the letters? Well, not necessarily. It could be that Maria signed away her rights, preventing her from disparaging the company, as her son has claimed. It could be that Maria believed the royalties and payments were simply from the sale of her books and not from a scam. This could just be a fantastic lesson as to why you should never sign away the rights to your name. So let's get into the final chapter of this episode and see if we can find out what happened. Melanie Hicken and Blake Ellis did try to get to the bottom of this. They traveled to Collis in the South of France and started their search for her in the archives of the local newspaper. According to them, there we found decades old articles that showed Duval really had been famous for finding missing people long before a letter was ever sent out in her name. One article from 1977 had a photo of her as a short haired brunette who had located a missing man after seeing only his photograph. After much digging on the part of these two, they found Maria's home about 10 minutes outside of the center of town. Though they were repeatedly turned away and told Maria was in Rome, the women were eventually able to contact her through her son. According to her son, his mother had lived a normal life for a while. She actually was an owner of an industrial cleaning business specializing in pools and saunas, then as the proprietor of several clothing stores. Eventually though, she began giving astrological consultations to her friends and her stage name, Maria Duval, was genuinely her real name. Duval was the name of her second husband. She said that his mother had worked with the police to find people and she had a good name and a good reputation. It was only when she sold the rights to it to some Swiss businessman that things went south. He claimed that they sold astrology charts at first, but the business model changed over time and his mother was helpless to stop it. This isn't completely unheard of as the journalists state. We later heard from an astropsychologist named Dr. Turry, who told us he became trapped in a very similar deal after signing a contract like this with a Canadian marketing company. He says he was horrified by the letters sent out in his name and that he only received a few hundred dollars in royalties. Unlike the story Duval's son told us though, Turry said he was able to get out after two years when he refused to sign any more contracts. Maria, her son says, is as much a victim of these scammers as anyone. She can't use her own name for work and she had no choice but to live off the royalties she received since she wouldn't exactly be Maria Duval the psychic again. These days, Maria has dementia and she had a stroke in 2010 as well. To some, it might seem convenient that the woman who authorities are looking for can't remember a thing about the scam that has her name written all over it. Not to mention, Maria has continued to dodge questions over the years and has proven herself sharp enough to think a quick lie to get people to leave her alone. When the journalists were turned away at Maria Duval's gate, it was Maria who told them Maria is away in Rome right now before shuffling off. But for Duval, she claims to have had no control over what happened and perhaps understandably, if this is true, she just wants to live out her final years in peace and to forget this horrible chapter of her life. Her son has acknowledged that his mother trusted the wrong people. Her wealth and fame wasn't enough, hence why she signed over the rights to her name, believing that it would give her more. Duval believed in the promises of the businessmen the same way the victims believed in the promises of the psychic they were writing to, and both ended up for the worse. Yes, it was greedy of Maria to allow this to happen, to sit back and profit from it unfolding, but 
If that's the extent of her involvement, then it doesn't seem as if she was the mastermind behind the scam. The frustrating part about this is, is that I believe that those who were involved aren't really going to face justice anytime soon. But with that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode. I also do recommend taking a look at the book, A Deal with the Devil by Blake Ellis and Melanie Hicken, the two journalists that worked on this case, as it was also incredibly useful in my research. As for now, thank you so much for making it to another episode of Multi-Level Mondays. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Make sure you're following on all social media to stay up to date on future projects and activities. My Linktree link is in the description box. It'll load all those up for you in a nice little organized list real quick. So thank you so much for making it. I appreciate you being here today and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.